Kayaku Rakatira, Tena Koto Katoa. Ko Rachel Kingaho. He mihi tene, no te tira, o kupu, no o tu tahi. He mihi hoki, ki te mana whenua, o te roe nei, ki a ngai tuahuriri mō tō manakitaka. Tēnā koutou. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā huihui tātou katoa. Welcome, everybody, to this very special Word Christchurch Festival event. Helen Clark, Women, Equality, Power. Woo! Yeah! <laughs> My name is Rachel King and I'm the Program Director of Word Christchurch and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to the festival, even all of you right up the very top. <laughs> I hope you'll stay with us for the coming weekend as well, where we've got a feast of speakers and events to challenge, entertain and inspire you. I'll leave the host of this session, who worship the Mayor, Leanne Dalziel, to introduce our guest speaker. But since this is a writer's festival, I do want to acknowledge Helen Clark's commitment to and elevation of New Zealand literature in her time as Prime Minister. Not the least, the establishment of the Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement, which has miraculously survived to this day. <laughs> and it's recognised the legacy of some of our greatest contemporary writers and their lifelong contributions. It was a proud day for my family when, alongside Janet Frame and Honey Tufare, my father, Michael King, received the very first Prime Minister's Award for Nonfiction in 2003. Thank you. It was just a few short months before he died. Um, so we will always be grateful for the recognition that came when it did. So a very big thank you to Helen for agreeing to appear at such short notice at the festival. Two weeks ago, we announced this show, and look at all of you here tonight. Um, and we also want to thank her publishers, Alan and Unwin, for helping to make it happen. Um, and there will be a limited number of signed copies of Helen's book out in the foyer for sale from the UBS stand. Um, on both, there will be two stands on both the first two levels. Um, Anyway, enough from me. Um, please enjoy the evening's events, and we welcome you to stay afterwards for the Starry Starry Night Gala, where you'll hear from seven of our fantastic festival stars, hosted by John Campbell. But now, will you please welcome Leanne Dalziel and Helen Clark. Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to this evening's session, uh, Helen Clark, Women, Equality, Power. Welcome to Helen Clark. Thank you. <laughs> I know that uh, Rachel asked me to do an introduction, but the reason that you're all here is that Helen Clark needs no introduction. <laughs> we know that she has been a trailblazer for women uh, in this country and globally. 
and uh, we are incredibly grateful to have her here this evening. Now, this hour is going to go by really, really quickly, so I really want, and I really want to leave some time to um, have Helen answer some questions that were submitted by members of our audience earlier, so I'm just gonna get straight into it. Now, I've read lots of books of speeches before, and I think that they are an excellent way to get to the heart of the issues that really matter to a person. Now, my memory of traveling with Helen on the way to a speaking engagement uh, was the last-minute scribbling of notes over the carefully typewritten <laughs> notes that she had with her. And in fact, I always thought that the handwritten notes uh, covered much more of the, um, the type notes uh, and uh, consumed most of the content. Uh, and I also remember your staff actually uh, recording the speeches that you gave and then rushing up to you afterwards to make sure that they took away those sheafs of paper that had their <laughs> handwritten notes so that they could keep a record. Well, thank goodness, thank goodness they did or we wouldn't have this book. So my first question is, is why these 65 speeches? I, I understand now that you didn't choose them but they do seem to me to be representative of the significant elements of your career to date and how it was, and, and I'd really like to know how it was with UNDP um, as well, because I can't ima imagine that they would really appreciate those last minute changes to speeches <laughs> on the car on the way to the event. <laughs> <laughs> well, firstly, thank you, Leanne, for agreeing to be the, the moderator tonight. I've done an event in Wellington this morning with Geoffrey Palmer, who adopted the Socratic method he used to use <laughs> at the law school. So it, it's really been a trip down memory Lane today. <laughs> and secondly, how wonderful to be back in the beautiful refurbished theatre uh, royal here. Absolutely amazing. So, uh, and it looks spectacular. So what I can say is this selection of speeches is actually the, the tiniest fraction of the speeches I've ever given because I started giving uh, a lot of speeches on behalf of the Labour Party, going back to when I was the, uh, the chair of the Labour Youth Council in 1973. And none of those have made their way into a book like this. And <laughs> maybe if I had time to go back through my archives, many hundreds of boxes of, uh, are in the National Archives, uh, I might uh, dig some out. Uh, and then over the years, I, I gave many speeches that I never, never put into writing mm. at all. Uh, and when I left UNDP in April last year, they presented me with four bound volumes of 800 speeches and statements just from the eight years at UNDP. So, and some of those are in, in the book, but essentially the book is, is sort of bookended by the maiden speech of 1982, April 1982. And then it ends with one at the Asian Development Bank um, in Manila in March uh, this, this year, which was kind of the cut-off point. Uh, so I think it, it's quite a good range, and, and I haven't actually had the, the resilience to go back and look at a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I dip into the UNDP ones because I want to draw on the source uh, material. Um, but I'm you know, really appreciative that Ellen and Unwin thought this would be a good, a good project. When I was approached by Jenny Helen about whether a book could be done, I said, well, do you think there'll be any interest? 
And she said, oh, I think there might be. You know? <laughs> and of course, a big year, you know, women's suffrage and all that. So I said, oh, that's fine, as long as it doesn't require too much effort from me. Because <laughs> I'm kind of 24 seven. Um, but uh, here we are, the first edition sold out a couple of weeks ago. So I guess somebody's interested. And in fact, you're all here means you're interested. <laughs> I'm actually going to come back to the maiden speech because that's where the, the book begins. Um, but I want to pick up on some of the issues that uh, represented different aspects of your time in, in Parliament first. And, and the first of those, of course, is the nuclear-free issue. And I guess uh, Christchurch being the place that we are, uh, we really value that. We are New Zealand's first city to become a nuclear-free city. <laughs> So it's very near and dear to our heart. But there was a certain degree of tension that I felt in some of the speeches um, from opposition and then from the government backbenchers uh, back in the early days. And there was obviously some uh, real tension behind the impending arrival of the USS Buchanan. And I, I thought perhaps you could describe this time and, and what it meant for us as a country and what it means for us today. Well. The nuclear free movement in New Zealand had its basis in communities up and down the country. Christchurch had a very strong movement. But I remember in those early years I was in, in politics, and even before coming into Parliament, you would go all over New Zealand speaking in towns large and small about the importance of a nuclear weapon free world. I went to Waipukarau. I went all over uh, New Zealand on, on this cause over the years. And remember, you know, Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, and the Cold War tensions just went like that. And he had some um, particularly insane uh, aide who wrote a book called With Enough Shovels. And the thesis of this book was that if you had enough shovels, you could dig out the shelters that you'd need when the war with the Russians came. I mean, that, that was the atmosphere in the early uh, 1980s, and it just kind of you know, kept, kept getting worse. Um, so you know, th there was a lot of feeling about this in New Zealand. Of course, it was also uh, spurred along by the fact that our neighborhood, the South Pacific, was a nuclear testing ground. You know, we'd probably say a proving ground these days, right? Because they, they tested their weapons. The French tested them in the atmosphere. Of course, in the northwest of the Pacific, uh, the war ended in Japan with uh, two atomic bombs, uh, a, a terrible uh, legacy, the uh, Bikini Atoll and the atmospheric testing in the, the Marshall uh, Islands, uh, the British testing at Christmas Island, and then in remote parts of, uh, of South Australia, Maralinga, uh, where Aboriginal people were subjected to the effects, our own nuclear veterans from the uh, HMNZS, Pukaki and Rotuiti from the 50s. I mean, we had a history on this. And I think the insanity of the Reagan years brought it all into focus and really the, the movement accelerated. Uh, and so it became an extremely important issue for, for communities, for civil society organizations, for the Labor Party. Uh, when Norman Kirk was uh, elected, he sent the frigate up uh, to protest in, the, in French mm. Polynesia with Fraser Coleman, a cabinet minister on, on board. And years before, Matt Rata had been sent up on a, on a protest boat uh, to, to have a Labour presence. So really not a surprise that it became a key election issue in 1984. 
And then I got to chair the Foreign Affairs and Defence Select Committees and the Disarmament and Arms Control Select Committee, which took the nuclear-free legislation through Parliament. But there were so many epic moments. I mean, yes, saying no to the Buchanan was, it, was an epic moment because it could have been equipped with nuclear-tipped uh, weapons. Uh, those kinds of boats uh, had that uh, ca capacity. Um, and then I remember the... You know, the meeting that David Longy had with George Schultz on the west coast of the States, uh, where Schultz's words were, we part as friends, but we part, and we charted our own course. And we have to continue to chart our own course. That was, that was the vision, to have an independent foreign policy where, you know, Kiwis could express their values. And, you know, I do see some question marks over that um, from the last nine years and not yet put down yet. So mm. I am very concerned about, about that. So that's something we have to be remaining vigilant about. Ever vigilant, ever vigilant, because nuclear weapons haven't gone away, right? And what is one of the uh, you know, major points of tension uh, right now, it's around you know, North Korea's development of a nuclear weapon and mm. how that issue will play out. Mm. Look, just moving on, um, you became a minister late in the second term of the fourth Labour government. Um, there are a couple of speeches from this time, and one of those was the Smoke-Free Environments Bill. Mm. Um, now, this was passed just months before an election with a powerful tobacco lobby at your heels. Now, I think that takes courage to take on a big industry like that. And in many respects, um, you led the way. But the thing was, was that it stuck. You know, I remember when I was elected to Parliament in 1990 being approached by um, uh, sports codes that were sponsored by the tobacco lobby and, or tobacco industry, and, uh, and yet they weren't able to turn it back. So you'd actually achieved something quite great and the country didn't go back. So, you know, how, how does it feel to take on a big issue like that just before an election because it's the right thing to do? I'm not sure I was that popular with all my colleagues. <laughs> uh, but I became Minister of Health in February 1989, which was, uh, what, I guess, 21 months before the, uh, the next uh, election. And, well, I knew I didn't have a lot of time, so I got going. I've actually got quite a long list of things I did in the 21 months, including autonomy for midwiferies. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the Smoke-Free Environments Act was a, another of those, <laughs> those initiatives, and I had you know, wonderful support from Ash New Zealand and Professor Robert Beaglehole. I'm still their patron, by the way. Uh, but the tobacco industry was very mean and nasty, and they hired a public relations firm, Burston Marcella, uh, that uh, that really did a job on me. I mean, I was portrayed as a you know, cruel, uncaring woman who wanted to take away, you know, people's uh, greatest loves and, and habits with their, their tobacco. Um, and it, it was probably quite damaging, actually, uh, long term, the the job they tried to do on me. But anyway, I mean, we persisted, and I kept the support of the of the government to, to get it through Parliament. And who would want to go back to the days that we had in the past? You used mm. to come to a cinema and people were smoking in the mm. cinema when I was much younger. Mm. Um, you know, to be able to go to a restaurant and not have people puff over you. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Mm. And, and while there was a lot of opposition uh, from, from our opponents in Parliament at the time, they, they never 
they, they did fiddle with the legislation a little bit initially, but then they got carried away with mm. the importance of it as well. And you could really say there has been a bipartisan consensus in Parliament for quite a lot of years that you simply have to act for the public health against substances uh, which uh, are legal uh, and are causing a lot of death. Mm. Mm. Yes, mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> mm. Now, the, the other piece of legislation that you shepherded through in that short time um, was uh, one that didn't stick, and that was the Employment Equity Bill. Mm -hmm. And it's become highly topical yet again. So do you want to just kind of reflect on what you were trying to achieve with that legislation and why that remains important today? So the, the argument was that there was a gender component uh, in the pay differences between primarily women-dominated professions and male ones. And the most uh, the prominent of these comparisons, which was made in the advocacy around the Employment uh, Equity uh, Act, uh, was police versus nurses, mm. because in, in that time still, police were very, very predominantly male and nurses were very predominantly uh, female. Uh, so the idea of, of, of the legislation, which had a short life, uh, was to have a formal process for comparisons between uh, occupations to identify how much the gender gap was and then to have a pathway to, uh, to, to close that, that gap. Uh, so the intention, uh, of course, was, was excellent. Uh, now, Bill Birch, who was the opposition spokesperson on Labor, said uh, if he got elected uh, into government, the bill would be gone by Christmas. Mm. I thought, that's quite ambitious, but you know it was. It, it was. was gone by Christmas. Um, so mm. then the, the sort of voluntary uh, effort was set up, uh, which started off as an equal... Uh, Opportunity Trust, and I think has got a different name now. And they, they did good work under Trudy McNaughton uh, for years, uh, encouraging diversity in the workforce and you know the really the, the people-friendly workforce. Uh, um, but what interested me was the care workers case for uh, pay mm. equity, and that was taken under the existing Equal Pay Act of 1972. And maybe if we'd had more creative legal advice back in the 80s, mm. uh, we could have you know, pursued that. But I'm really happy uh, for the care workers that they've had that settlement under existing legislation. Mm -hmm. um, you became the leader of the opposition in 1994, the first woman to hold that position in New Zealand. And in that role, you, of course, made a number of addresses at formal state occasions alongside the Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. um, one of these occasions that, that really stood out for me was when Nelson Mandela made his state visit to New Zealand. But you obviously have had the opportunity to engage with some of the inspirational leaders mm -hmm. over the years. Um, are there some special moments you could share with us? And are there any women you have been inspired by? Well, I, you can't go past Nelson Mandela as an inspirational figure. Mm. And uh, when he came here in 1995 for Chogham, I was able to meet him as leader of the opposition. Actually, I had a whole lot of people send me their, their protest T-shirts, caps and mugs and said, would you give them to Nelson Mandela and he could sign them while you spoke. <laughs> anyway, that, that was touching, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but what, what an incredible man. And, and I remember uh, a friend of mine, uh, who should remain nameless, 
uh, was at a big reception for Nelson Mandela and, and saw this great man with uh, many people wanting to be photographed with him, uh, a number of whom had no track record whatsoever of ever protesting against a Springbok tour or saying anything kind about him. I remember when the first Labour government the fourth Labour government set up a Nelson Mandela scholarship for a South African student. It was denounced as a terrorist uh, scholarship by Merv Wellington, uh, I think. <laughs> I'm really bringing up names you haven't thought about for years. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so, so my friend observing this you know, behaviour from those who had never supported the cause said to Mr Mandela, um, do you ever feel any resentment that people now want their photos with you and your signature? but said nothing all those decades you were in jail. And he said to her, you know, my dear, uh, over my very long life, I have learnt that it is important to forgive, but never forget. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, in 2002, as Prime Minister, I went to the Sustainable Development Summit in, of the UN in Johannesburg, and Nelson Mandela's home was in Johannesburg, and we asked, for an appointment, and he didn't see many leaders because he was already obviously quite an elderly mm. man, but he saw me because he, you know, he still had memories, memories of the cheer that went round the cell block when the news of the Hamilton game being stopped in 1981 came through, mm. and he really valued the, you know, the civil society opposition out of New Zealand that played a part in, you know, forcing the... Uh, the isolation of apartheid South Africa, which in the end led it to crumble and enabled him to walk a free man from jail and lead his country. Mm. And, and is there a woman who's touched you like that as well? I think, for me, the remarkable women leaders kind of just before me and around my time uh, definitely Gro Harlem Brundtland, who was the Labour Prime mm. Minister of Norway, long-serving Prime Minister. And she went on to head the World Health Organisation. Mm. Very, very fine woman. She's, she's visited New Zealand and she continues to be active in the elders group of former uh, statesmen and women. Uh, then I would also name the two Irish presidents, the two Marys, mm. Mm. and uh, Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese, both amazing women who've really helped define the, the new Ireland. Mm. And isn't it incredible uh, that Ireland has just, you know, by massive vote and referendum, uh, voted progressively on the abortion law where the United States women are having to defend it all again. Mm. I mean, it's a kind of an irony, really, but I think those two women have just been so important in the emergence of a new Ireland. Mm. Um, and then you became the first woman to be elected as the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Mm. Uh, it's the 120... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's the, of course, as we know, the 125th anniversary of women's suffrage this year, yeah. the 19th of September, and we in Christchurch are really proud of the role that we played yeah. uh, as, the, as the city, or the women of our city played at the time in really leading the campaign. Can um, we hear your thoughts on how far we've come and what do you think are the biggest challenges to equality and equity that we face yeah. today? 
Well, we've come quite a way, and couldn't have, and we all stand on the shoulders of people who fought the early fights, right? The fight for the suffrage, the fight for women actually to be able to stand as members of parliament, which didn't come till 1919. Mm -hmm. And then Elizabeth McCombs, a yep. Cantabrian, the first uh, woman MP, elected 40 years after the suffrage. You know, we, we were quite slow movers when you, when you think about it. Uh, although it was remarkable that in 1893 an all-male parliament did, did vote for women, mm. uh, women's suffrage uh, long before others, others did. Um, but you know, here we are, more than half the last 21 years, New Zealand has had uh, women prime ministers. We're up to you know, pretty close to 40% of the parliament is, is female. And I think that with you know, a real push and shove from and at the political parties, you could, in two to three elections, reach parity. If you could do it by 2030, which is the big date in this global sustainable development agenda, that would be uh, very, very good. Uh, but where are we not there? We're not there on the pay gap yet. Uh, it stands at 9.2%. Uh, which is, of course, lower than it has been, uh, but not quite there yet. And I think it will need more men to do what Clark Gayford is doing in co-parenting mm. to close these gaps. <laughs> so I, I always give a, a big shout out to Clark because you know he, he has his, his own career too, but he's mm. saying, well, this is important to me, this is important to us as a family. Uh, so the pay gap, the, the big issue I think is the, is the sexual and gender-based violence. You know, what is it about our country that sees us lead the OECD in the domestic and family violence rates? I think it's absolutely shameful. I think we need cross-party, long-term, consistent addressing of this issue because you know, how can women realize their full potential if they're cowering at home, terrified of him when he comes and terrified for their children, mm. uh, if they don't feel safe in their community? There's a survey that's, or an index that's compiled by the University of Georgetown in Washington, D.C. each year on women, peace and security. It just came out in recent days. And so where is New Zealand ranked? 18th. So you look at, well, what are the indicators here? And one of the three indicators is around uh, the violence against women. Mm. So there's Iceland up at number one, and we're at 18. Not good enough. You know, we could do so much better. So I think we really need a big push on this. And if out of the 125th anniversary year, we can reflect on that and mm. say that this is absolutely unfinished business. Because for women to be beaten, because they're women, uh, suggests some, you know, some profound elements of, of inequality in the society. Um, as Prime Minister, there, there are many speeches in the book that traverse the local and international issues of the time, but um, and I do remember you giving this speech at Christchurch Cathedral on the 4th of March 2004, and you said, uh, we live in a democracy and the choices are clear. We can go forward together or we can rip ourselves apart. Um, and so can I really ask you to perhaps talk about the challenges of balancing the myriad of issues and mm -hmm. interests that you're confronted with as Prime Minister? And in that context, if there was one thing that you regret, something you think you or your government could have handled better, what would that be? Well, I do remember the context of that speech at Christchurch Cathedral. It was when uh, Brash was in his element as leader of the opposition. 
And <laughs> he did a race-based campaign, let's be clear. Mm. Uh, he did dog whistle to perfection. And he nearly took me out mm. on dog whistle because unfortunately, there is an element of our society that responds to that itch being scratched mm. and are ready to believe uh, that somehow Maori are privileged. I don't get it. Look at the statistics, the jail statistics, the health statistics, the inequalities. Mm. And he had the impudence to go around the country saying that Pākehā were less privileged than Māori. I mean, it is ridiculous. And he's still at it. Uh, you know, we have good-hearted local bodies that see that Māori are not getting elected to local bodies, so they make provision for Māori seats. He, his organisation is using a some kind of provision in the Local Government Act where every time this happens, he can go around, get the votes for a referendum, and these proposals are falling over one after the other. Mm. So on we go with, you know, really uh, a far too small a Māori voice in our local authorities. Actually, in Parliament, the representation's looking pretty good mm. across parties, and, you know, the numbers are, you know, very, very healthy for Māori uh, participation. But local government, it's a gap. And, and I, I just think it's deplorable that this continues to be uh, raked over. So I, I did give the speech in this context at Christchurch Cathedral, and then, then I remember there was a, you know, a lot of moaning from predictable quarters that I had made such a political speech in the cathedral. My goodness. Our wonderful... <laughs> Our wonderful Christchurch Cathedral, which had really been the people's place, right, in Christchurch all those years, always the big events, the big debates mm. from Christchurch Cathedral. And what's been the history of churches? You know, there have been marketplaces for ideas and goods and, and, and whatever. So it was a very appropriate place to make such a, a speech. But I'll give a, sh a shout out to Peter Beck for having the courage to ask me to make it. <laughs> <laughs> When you became the administrator of the UNDP, you not only took New Zealand onto the world stage, you advanced the cause of women and leadership globally. When you were PM, and you've done it here tonight, you called out the gendered nature of domestic violence uh, and the lack of equity in employment. Now you called out the gendered impact of excluding women from the decision-making table when discussing issues like climate change, disaster risk reduction, conflict mm. resolution, mm. the consequences of which mm. fall most harshly on women and girls. Mm. There are several speeches which speak about the role of women being key to a sustainable mm. world, and that's what I'd really like you to expand on. Yes, well, we have you know, many, many legislatures around the world, let alone you know, cabinets where women's voices barely present at all. Uh, last week I spent uh, around four days in the Solomon Islands, and I was asked to go up and support a, you know, a big workshop where women who are interested in running in the next elections could come and, you know, um, really get, get really, uh, shall we say, revved up to run and, and do workshops on the skills and what they needed to know and the processes and campaigning and, 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 and so on. But in their last elections, uh, there were 26 women candidates and one was elected. Mm. Now, you know, women in the Solomons, like women in many countries, face a lot of issues. E extremely high rates of domestic violence. Um, of course, uh, many girls and boys don't finish their, their schooling. Uh, maternal death rate is down, but uh, could, be, could be down more. Uh, the Solomons is a Pacific ocean country is very challenged by climate change and, and women uh, 
are more vulnerable than men, to put it bluntly. I mean, climate change challenges exacerbate every known uh, vulnerability. More disasters, you know, the figures show that in these major climate uh, disasters, uh, the death rate is disproportionately female, mm. and that's because women uh, often, they can't run, right? They've got, a, they've got the children, they've got their elderly parent, they've got the relative with disability, they can't run. So, so they die more in these kinds of disasters. So mm. there's so many things that, you know, one would like to see the women of the Solomons able to express their views on in the highest circles, but they're not there. And you can tell that, that story around so, so many countries. So I think encouraging women to, uh, to, to come forward, step up, have a go, build the alliances and networks, find the male champions too, which is very important, uh, is, is absolutely essential for bringing women's perspectives into decision making. Mm. Um, I, I read this reference in one of your speeches, and it's not one of your quotes, but I, I, I think it's um, incredibly um, perceptive, and I'm glad that you've um, used it. We do not want to be mainstreamed into a polluted stream. We call for deep and structural changes to existing global systems of power, decision-making, and resource-sharing. This includes enacting policies that recognise and redistribute the unequal and unfair burdens of women and girls in sustaining societal well-being and economies intensified in times of economic and ecological crises. Now, it's, as I said, it's not your quote, but I felt that you chose it to illustrate the need for systemic change, really mm. fundamental change. And this one was off the back of the GFC, but it seems to me that it has um, more broad application. Mm, mm. Well, you know, every, every year there's a, a global gender gap report that is produced. It's a report produced by the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. And last year they reported a regression in the progress towards gender equality. Um, and they haven't really probed so much into, into why that is, but they've reported the fact that we seem to be going backwards, or that or the, yeah, trends are going in the wrong direction. They put a, an estimate on, the, on achieving gender parity in the workforce and economy that it would take 217 years at current rates of progress, which is, which is dismal. Mm -hmm. And uh, for gender parity in parliament, they estimated 99 years. Now, the World Bank also reports that 155 countries still have legislation uh, on their books which discriminate against women and impact on women's economic empowerment. So there, there are some quite deep structural factors here. And I think until you get those critical masses of women in, in decision-making structures, your, your parliaments, your public administration at senior levels, your, your cabinets, uh, women leaders, uh, a lot of the issues that are really pressing for women don't come far enough up the priority list. Uh, they, they're just not there, it's out of sight, out of mind. So I think the transformation uh, has to be, you know, really driven by this increasing women's participation in the, in the power structures that are making the calls about what happens in societies. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's, um, you know, that perhaps we might be going backwards? I mean, I'm interested yes, in what yes. you're saying about the 
the gender gap being yeah. identified as going the wrong yeah. way, but yeah. Uh, yeah. have you got some thoughts about what might be driving that? Well, I think if, if you look at uh, women holding leadership positions, uh, because the number's so small, you only need to have a few taken out and suddenly you know, the, the proportion uh, dives. So if you th think of Latin America, Michelle Bachelet is mm. not president now. She's been replaced by a male president. Uh, Dilma in Brazil was, in my opinion, subject to a constitutional coup. No one's proven that Dilma did anything fundamentally wrong, but she was hounded out of, out of office. Mm. Uh, woman president in Costa Rica uh, was replaced. There is a new woman uh, prime minister in Barbados, but oh, women prime ministers like Jacinda are only 5% of all prime ministers. And of heads of state, uh, which is different from heads of government, and heads of state include queens, uh, only 7.2% are women. I mean, these are tiny figures, so you can see how a couple of, you know, even three or four defeats can suddenly send the figures diving uh, again. So I think we have to try and turn the momentum around and, and really be pushing at the parliamentary level and the, obviously the local government and, and mayoralty uh, levels. I think if, if we look in the mirror ourselves, uh, our current figures for women at the head of government departments and entities are not anywhere near as good as they, they need to be. And often in a public administration, you know, the numbers of women are large, but they're not necessarily appropriately represented all the way up the top of the structure. Uh, and then the private sector is very dismal. You know, New Zealand private sector, like globally, uh, you're looking at what 20% or under uh, female membership of boards and uh, very you know, light representation in senior management structures. Despite all the evidence showing that the companies with significant levels of women on their boards and in their senior management do better than other companies. And what a surprise, they might actually be attuned to the needs of half the population. And <laughs> women are significant consumers of goods and services. So it, it makes commercial sense, and they still don't do it. Now, Norway got sick of companies just not doing it, so they legislated for quotas. In New Zealand, everyone shakes at the knees about quotas, but I tell you, Norway got results and their companies are doing quite well too. Mm. Mm. When you ran for the Secretary General's role, I think we all dared to believe that it was um, possible. Mm. And, um, and I, I think, like a lot of people, believe that the UN would have been a better place for your leadership. Mm. Um, I... <laughs> And in that regard, the world would have been a better place as well. But um, you've said that you haven't regretted taking on the challenge because it will spark other, pe other women to seek the office in the future. And I, I think what I'd really like us to talk about now are the sort of the cracks that we can make in those glass ceilings mm. and, uh, and then how we support and encourage others um, to follow on. Well, whenever I'm on a panel with an amazing woman called Laura Liswood, who's, who's kept a council of world women leaders going for years. And, and I mentioned the term glass ceiling. She says, I never talk about glass ceilings. She said, it's just a thick layer of men. <laughs> 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 
and it's still a very thick layer at the United Nations, obviously. <laughs> um, you know, having said that, I'm quite optimistic that the next Secretary General will be female because I think there was so much annoyance at mm. what happened last time uh, that there will be more awareness globally next time that for the 10th Secretary General to be male is just going to make the UN a laughing stock. Uh, you know, the majority of the candidates last time were female, and, and no one could, none of us could poll in the top sort of ranks despite having, you know, careers of significant achievement, which is mm. ridiculous. Um, so next time, I think it will be seen as Latin America and Caribbean regions turn, and there are a lot of strong women in Latin America and the Caribbean uh, with substantial leadership and foreign policy credentials. And I, I certainly will be backing the, the strongest person who emerges uh, uh, out of, the strongest woman who emerges out of that region uh, for the job. But look, you know, you never know till you try. Mm. You know, there, there were certain circumstances in which it might have been possible to come through, but in the end, uh, that wasn't the way it worked. But if I hadn't tried, and if I hadn't stood there right till the end, and if other women hadn't taken the same attitude, well, there wouldn't have been the basis for next time mm. to, you know, really try and, and, and crash through. So, you know, I, I don't regret uh, running, except that it probably wasted six months of my life. But, uh, you know, um, it, if, if it did create a platform for others to stand on, then it was time well spent. Mm. I think that's true. Mm. Um, I, I just want to come to the, the bookends of your parliamentary career. And um, I said I'd come back to your maiden speech. Mm. Uh, and I want to use the bookend of your valedictory speech as well, and I have just a couple of quotes from each. Um, it is a basic tenet of my philosophy that a society can be judged on how it treats its weakest members, the sick, disabled, the young, and elderly. Attacks on social provision for any of these cannot be defended in any humane society. We believe that the state must act to um, correct the imbalances in our society favoring the rich and powerful. My greatest wish is that at the end of my time in this house, I shall have contributed towards making New Zealand a better place than it is today for its people to live in. Mm. And that was 1982. That's right. And then in 2009, and I actually did a double take when I realized it was 2009, because I thought, where's the time gone? <laughs> it just seems like yesterday, mm. but um, 2009. I have always been very proud of New Zealand's egalitarian traditions Deep in our country's roots is the ethos that Jack is as good as his master, and these days we must say that Jill is as good as her mistress. There was also the ongoing process of reconciling with New Zealand's past, of recognising injustice where it had occurred, and addressing it. For us, New Zealand needed to stand for peace, justice, reconciliation, and sustainability. I leave knowing that I have fulfilled my wish and I did play a part in making New Zealand a better place. I think that's true. Oh. <laughs> mm. Mm. So I remember you telling me um, a number of years ago that you felt that you had achieved as much in your health portfolio uh, for the health of New Zealand, mm. sorry, in your housing portfolio, as you did in your health portfolio. Mm. Um, and I guess, so I, what I'd like to say is what, what stands out for you in your mm. time in Parliament, mm. and what advice would you offer some of our younger audience mm. members who want to change the world as well as making New Zealand a better place? Mm. 
So the, the first quote you used um, when I wrote the maiden speech, I really drew the inspiration from that, uh, from you know, words that were used in the first Labor government to justify the Social Security Act, that a, a decent society must look after it, its elderly, its young, its poor, its uh, people with disabilities. I mean, it's just a very, very strong statement about inclusion, and I think you know, it's probably inclusion that's been a you know, theme that's run all through my mm. uh, political uh, career. And then I was Minister of Housing, uh, before I was Minister of Health, and, and actually I was simultaneously both for, for a period of, of time as well. Uh, but I always believed that the, one of the, the fundamental determinants of health was a decent home, uh, that families and individuals need a, a roof over their head, that roof needs to be secure, it needs to be you know, warm, uh, that, that if you don't have that, well, A, you have the homeless crisis we see in a, a number of our cities today. And I was quite shocked actually walking down Courtney Place this afternoon uh, to see people uh, huddled up under their old uh, blankets and quilts in the shop uh, doorways, uh, which I don't remember uh, in my time as PM no. actually. And, and in broad daylight, it wasn't what, like they were bedding down for the night in, in, in broad daylight. Uh, but a, a, you know, a family without a home, you know, where do the children do their homework? Uh, you know, what, what about their health? Uh, so to have a home is just the, the fundamental uh, of, a, of a decent society, and I, I really hope we can see a re-energizing of you know, building state housing and accommodation. Uh, it was a sad day when so many of the councils got out of uh, council housing because councils across New Zealand did a great job with housing mm. supplementing uh, state housing provision. You know, in the end, I just don't believe in a market society. I think there are, there are goods like housing which are out of the reach of many low-income people uh, in a market, and mm. you have to have social policy that evens up the odds, just as you do with, with income, with benefits, with cash transfers for families. You know, people have very different circumstances, and the wage which might sustain an individual who's living at home with mum and dad is not going to sustain um, a young couple and a family. That, mm. That's the reality. So you do have to have social policy that, that deals with that. Look, I've got some um, pre-submitted questions. Mm. So the first one is from uh, Catherine. Uh, do you think we're ever going to get past women in leadership being judged by men or the press on the way they look or their fertility, primarily before looking at how effectively they lead? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. <laughs> well, I, I have to say I was just amazed at the questions Jacinda was being asked during the campaign. People had no business asking those questions. Mm. And uh, actually she was asked questions I was never asked, probably because I was somewhat older by the time I was close to becoming PM, so no one was asking me in my late 40s whether I was about to have a baby. <laughs> Absolutely not, right? <laughs> but she should never have been asked those questions. What guy in his 30s or 40s has asked that question? Nobody. And uh, you know, Jacinda quite rightly stood above it all and didn't didn't comment on it, but I commented on it, uh, and uh, <laughs> and and said it was completely inappropriate. I said, who's going to ask men whether they're going to have time off work because of their heart attacks, stroke, whatever? You know, <laughs> and and the reality is that we we have systems when the prime minister's not around, which is either when the 
you know, something else is going on, they may be representing the country overseas, you have a deputy prime minister. The deputy prime minister becomes the acting prime minister. So then we got the frenzy about, oh, the country's gonna be in Winston's hands for six weeks. <laughs> oh, we survived, didn't we? <laughs> and I must say, Jacinda's looking absolutely terrific. I don't know where she gets the energy from, but she, she's, uh, you know, really flowing back into it. And, uh, and uh, full marks to her. I think she had more energy than I had, and that's saying something. <laughs> but why, why is it that, um, you know, that this is almost an acceptable method of judging a person's performance? You know, and it's only women who are singled it's out for these questions. It's only women who ask these questions. And, you know, very few people comment on men's baggy old suits and scruffy shoes and haircut and, uh, you know, is their voice too high or too low and are their teeth crooked <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, women are really, you know, singled out for some quite ridiculous comment, but uh, I mean, I think w when you're in that lane and they're all coming at you, you, sh you just have to ignore it. Uh, I say far more about it now than I ever did at the time because if you say something about it at the time, it'll be seen as a point of weakness and really you can't let these people distract you or hold you back. Mm. But perhaps that is your role now. That's my role now to call it call out. Call it out. I could coin a phrase and say, tweet me up, Scotty. You know? <laughs> Yes, you're very prolific on Twitter. <laughs> I have a few things to say on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm calling I've... out the situation on Nauru at the moment. I mean, isn't it shameful uh, that children mm. are driven to take their own lives because they're detained on Nauru for mm. years on end and see no hope? There was one story about a, a young girl who, when she arrived, you know, migrant family looking for a new world, and uh, she had great hopes of being a doctor and is one of these ones who has now been affected by what's called resignation syndrome and they just stop eating and drinking. And these series of these children have been evacuated to Australia now to be given intensive medical care, probably life support because they're starving themselves to death. It's terrible, it's shocking. Mm. Shouldn't be happening. Well, you've, you've mm. reminded me that probably mm. one of my proudest moments as a mm. minister in your cabinet was um, the intervention on the Tampa. Um, yeah, it was yeah. pretty special. And, um, you know, that, that reaching out to Australia uh, was just such the right thing to do. But because you took that mm. leadership role, I think people actually started to understand, you know, why people were driven to mm. leave their country and take mm. the steps that they would take in mm. sheer desperation. So, mm -hmm. you know, I really take my hat off to you for that role that you played. Well, it, and it was, uh, actually just today at an event in Wellington, a young man came up to me after I'd spoken and he said, I was one of the Tampa children. Mm. And he said, you know, my family will never forget what you did. And, the, and I keep in touch with the Tampa boys mm. who came on their own as, as minors. They were under 18 and what an incredible job. Uh, firstly, uh, social welfare did mm. for, those, for those children. Uh, they had a, a camp mother, uh, Julie, and the, a house they, they bought to house the boys in, and Selwyn College educated them. They did an a, absolutely fantastic uh, job. Uh, but it wasn't, I mean, you know, it wasn't straightforward with public opinion because as word started to leak out that New Zealand was likely to accept asylum seekers from the Tampa, 
it got onto you know shock jock radio, and uh, my old friend Paul Holmes, the late Paul Holmes, um, had one of his snap polls, as I recall, and said, "Do you want New Zealand to accept these Q jumpers?" And 89% of his polls said no. And I thought, oh, this is brilliant, you know. So I remember uh, uh, actually informing the cabinet that I thought this is what we should do, and people were supportive. Immigration was hysterical. They thought we were going to have boatloads of people coming to New Zealand. I, I did point out that the last lot of uninvited people on boats were our ancestors. <laughs> 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 and uh, actually, I'll tell you another story about that in, in a minute. But uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, I remember uh, because it was starting to leak, and Paul had his silly poll and all this sort of thing. Uh, I decided better make an announcement, so I called a press conference at an Auckland hotel at a weekend, and I went in there and said, "Yes, the New Zealand government has decided." that uh, it will uh, accept uh, a number of people from the Tampa, and in the first instance, it will be all the children under the age of 18 and all the family groups. Why are we doing this? Uh, because, frankly, they can't sit on the deck of a boat in the Indian Ocean forever. Uh, and, and also, I said, you have to understand the context in which people are living in Afghanistan, that it mm. probably has the worst government on earth, uh, that it's, it's had drought for years, it's had civil war for a couple of decades, you know, and people are just paying anything to get the hell out of there. And that's how they end up stranded in the Indian Ocean. And they can't stay there, so we're going to be part of the solution. And public opinion turned around very quickly. People actually took a big interest in these, these families who came. We eventually settled far more than half the temper, as, mm. as I recall. But anyway, on uninvited people turning up on boats, um, <laughs> I went to a, uh, a conference of European and African leaders uh, in Malta. Uh, as UNDP administrator, and it was around the time of, you know, the, quote, migration crisis. And remember, Europe went into crisis when a million people arrived in 2015. Lebanon has had more than a million Syrian refugees there for seven years and hasn't gone into crisis. So let's get this in perspective. Lebanon has the population of New Zealand and the size of the Waikato. They haven't fallen apart, and it's a huge mm. tribute, really, to, to the country. Turkey has hosted three million, and they're not going home. Mm. Right? They will stay and probably become Turkish uh, citizens. But anyway, there was this conversation between uh, African and European leaders about the migration crisis. And eventually, a very eminent African, I won't say who, because it was probably Chatham House rules, <laughs> uh, said, I find it very interesting that there's all this talk about the uh, African migration crisis. She said, because we Africans over the years observed the movement of the peoples from Europe. <laughs> and we saw that they, they populated the Americas. They came all the way down through our continent, as far as South Africa. They even got, she said, as far as Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> and never, she said, did we Africans say, what can be done about the European migration crisis? <laughs> and you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> well, she had a point, didn't she? <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, Andrea asks you, what one piece of advice 
would you give to your 14-year-old self in the year 2018? Just to believe that you can fulfill your potential and you know, set, set your goals high and be prepared to put the effort into achieving them. And I think a 14-year-old in 2018, a 14-year-old girl has so many more choices than ever appeared to me as a 14-year-old girl. You know, at 14, this was before my family ever got television. You know, we were in such a little little bubble in our world on the farm and our boarding school hostel. And, and uh, you know, my ambition was to be a teacher like mum. I would never have thought of a political career at 14. But now girls can say, I'd like to be like Jacinda. Well, why not? They could be like Jacinda. So they should you know, aim to be like Jacinda or Dame Shana Elias, long-serving Chief Justice, or Patsy the Governor General, or any of the, you know, the others. They can aim to be the top of whatever they choose. And, you know, and some of them will get there, and some will get pretty high up. Thank you. That's an incredibly powerful note Thank to you. end on. <laughs> can, I, can I remind members of the audience that, that um, women equality power will be available in the um, foyer afterwards? I think Helen's mm. going to stay for a little while um, afterwards, but uh, has a plane to catch, so won't be here for, for, for that long. Uh, can I thank you, members of the audience? I, I hope you've enjoyed tonight. Um, I hope you think that this has been a, a really significant contribution to Word Christchurch 2018. Um, and uh, finally, can I, on your behalf, thank Helen, not only for being here tonight and engaging so openly with us, um, and the line of the night, I have to say, yeah, no more the glass ceiling, just the... <laughs> Heaps of glare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also for her commitment to challenging the status quo, for advancing the interests of women and girls, for reinforcing the importance of equality, and for helping us to understand the dynamics of power. You have been and remain an outstanding role model, and we are very proud to have you here this evening on the cusp of the 125th anniversary of women's suffrage, which has its roots here in Christchurch. Yes. Thank you for being here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Leanne. <laughs>